Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. One of the first things that someone from a different church background might notice upon visiting here is that the language we use in our services might be a little bit different. The these and thous, sure, some, a few odd words here and there, but even just the sentence structure, it's a more poetic cadence for a lot of the language. The King James Version of the Bible is uh, what basically all of the scripture quotations in our liturgies come from here in the Western Rite, unless they're psalm verses, which actually come from the Coverdale translation, which is actually older than the King James And the other language of the liturgy either comes straight from or has been translated to match the style of the 16th century English prayer book tradition. All of this means that for us, the language we use here in church is immediately recognizable as distinct from what we hear or use in everyday speech or our other spheres of life. It becomes unique and set apart, holy actually, which just means set apart specifically for God. This idea of using distinct language in matters concerning the sacred or divine is actually a very common, almost universal human intuition. Hieratic or priestly language, i.e. language used specifically in sacred contexts, is something the Jews were familiar with, as by Jesus' day, Hebrew was still used in the synagogue and the temple, but almost no one spoke it as their everyday speech. Kine Greek of the New Testament became, over time, no longer common Greek, but scriptural Greek. Latin was preserved in the West for worship, even as the Romance languages of Italian, French, and Spanish were each becoming more distinct. But the same thing happens in other cultures with their various religious traditions too. The intuition to make language of the sacred distinct, like its architecture, uh, rituals, dress, and the objects of the sacred as well, is, I think, persistent and noble. It does, however, occasionally require the extra work of translating or clarifying the meanings of sacred language to the very people it's supposed to be ennobling and inspiring. In Jesus' day, targums were written in Aramaic um, to translate and explain the Hebrew scriptures. In medieval medieval Europe, uh, something called prones or prones, I'm not sure how it uh, is pronounced, were short vernacular services often inserted right in the middle of mass That included a translation of the scripture readings, a homily, and often some short bidding prayers and or catechetical explanations of the liturgy. And even still today, it's useful sometimes to do a little explaining and clarifying. For instance, in today's epistle reading, St. Paul tells us that of those who resist the rulers and powers in this world, which are ordained by God, Quote, they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, damnation to our ears means something fairly specific and horrific. Does Paul mean that someone resisting worldly powers automatically earns themselves the sentence of hellfire? I think we should rightly be indignant at that idea because in KJV language, damnation doesn't necessarily mean that. Despite translating directly from the Greek New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament, the KJV, interestingly, went with the Latin-derived word damnation here, which comes from the word damnationem, from the Latin Vulgate translation. 
And this word in Latin, like the original Greek word krima, um, which it translates, had more of the meaning of judgment or condemnation in a more worldly and temporal sense. And that's how more recent translations like the ESV and RSV render it, judgment. So what St. Paul is telling the Roman Christians in our epistle today is that of them, any of them that actively flout the authorities around them, they can expect consequences. He tells them to pay taxes, obey laws, and give respect and honor where and to whom it's due because worldly authorities are there to punish bad conduct, not good conduct. And besides, the mere fact that those authorities exist is because God has ordained them to be there, and so resisting them is actually resisting God's will. Now, even if Paul isn't saying that disobeying or flouting a temporal government earns you a ticket to hell, it's still pretty remarkable that the judgment or punishment you can expect for it, he seems to equate with the wrath of God himself. But can that really be the case? Is every action of the state the direct will of God? I think we should also rightly be indignant at that idea too. We know it's not the case. I mean, the very Roman government Paul is instructing the Christians there to prudently obey is the government that would arrest and behead him merely for preaching the truth of Christ. So clearly there's more going on here than it may immediately seem. St. Paul is clearly in this passage instructing the Christians in Rome not to behave wickedly or wrongly, or else the power structure there will certainly punish them, as almost all power structures do. Across the world, among all types of cultures and societies, people organize for themselves various types of government and authorities to keep in check the baser, more unrestrained, and evil sides of our nature. These structures are never perfect and often even perpetuate evils of their own. But without them, again, almost all cultures and societies have discovered that chaos ensues and very little can be accomplished productively for the common good. So whatever structures do inevitably form, by the mere fact of their existence, they have been allowed by God, at least for a time, to prevent some evils and to allow for some order. But none of them are ever out from underneath God's own authority and power. As St. Paul says, there is no power but of God. This fact is demonstrated powerfully through today's gospel, which shows us the amazing authority God through Christ has over the very elements of creation and over the spiritual powers in this world. When Jesus dissipates a storm with only a word and corrals whole herds of evil spirits with a simple directive, his unquestioned power and authority over everything in creation is made clearly evident. And yet, he allowed himself to be betrayed, arrested, and killed by a human authority structure. Why? In a way, it wasn't the power or authority structure itself that killed Jesus. It was people. It was us. There's something different when it comes to people, individual souls. When a power structure is keeping peace by punishing wickedness and increasing good order, its authority to do that is genuinely ordained by God. But when the people within that structure use its power to act wickedly themselves and to foster unjust environments for other people, then their own wickedness puts them under the judgment and wrath of God. But vengeance is the Lord's and not ours. So we see Christ setting the example for us in how to behave 
when unjust power asserts itself on us at the hands of our fellow man. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Submit to the evil in order to demonstrate the faith and love that has its confidence in God. Paul himself would willingly follow our Lord's example by becoming a martyr to his name, as would the other apostles and countless Christian saints through the centuries. Everything in this world is temporary, temporal. And while it lasts, God has ordained for it to have its moment under the sun. But in the light of the true son of righteousness, the son of God, who will judge all things at the end of the age, what will be the verdict on each of those things that had their moments in the sun? We are to operate blamelessly in the assurance of what's to come, the assurance that the authority of Jesus Christ will subdue all things to his love and rule. What that means for us in the present is that we are to follow his and St. Paul's and St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Clement of Alexandria and St. Justin's, etc. example of radical love and radical trust in God's authority. This is not to say that we are to be walked all over at every point for every little thing. What it is to say is that if it's because of us living and preaching the truth of Jesus Christ, we are then persecuted. Blessed are we for that. The authority that we see God demonstrating by calming the seas, by corralling and subduing the rebellious, evil, spiritual powers in this world, and by judging those people within power and authority structures now, that is what we put our trust in. Not the structures themselves, but in God's authority over all things in creation, human, physical, spiritual. Today assures us of the authority and power of God through Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we turn to his altar now, putting our trust in him and offering our hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.